0: Welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacey Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. The 2018 midterm elections are just around the corner. Much has been said about how divided Americans are these days, especially along rural and urban lines. And yet polls show that voters across the spectrum are actually quite aligned when it comes to several core economic issues. Large majorities of voters believe that big corporations have too much power, and that public policy has rigged the system to favor these corporate giants at the expense of whole communities that have been pushed to the margins. To help us think about these dynamics and how election campaigns that focus on challenging concentrated power might just be the key to fixing our politics, I've asked Austin Frerich to join us on the show today. Austin launched a campaign last year to win the Democratic nomination for Iowa's 3rd Congressional District. It's a district that encompasses the city of Des Moines and a large rural swath of southwest Iowa. Austin eventually had to drop out of the race because he spent too much time talking to voters and not enough time fundraising. But before he stepped aside, he'd built a strong grassroots following and he'd drawn considerable local and national media attention for the anti monopoly ideas he was talking about on the campaign trail and the response he was getting from rural voters. Austin is a seventh-generation native of Iowa. He's also an economist and a fellow at the Open Markets Institute. He joins us today from Kansas City, where he's participating in the annual conference of the Organization for Competitive Markets. Austin, welcome to Building Local Power.
1: Thanks for having me on, Stacey.
0: Well, I want to start just by asking you... What led you to decide to run for Congress? I mean, that's a big thing to take on, and I'd I'd like to know more about sort of where you come from and what the motivation was.
1: I was going to say it's not too many 28-year-olds run for Congress. I was actually a tax economist at Treasury before I ran for Congress, Um, and I was actually writing an academic paper on uh, monopolies. And just essentially, it was just like an exercise to essentially get ready for the next administration, and I kept seeing all these huge monopoly profits and um, these different sectors that you normally don't see. Honestly, it was food that really caught my eye because pharmaceutical kind of deal is you do all this research, you get a patent, you have a monopoly for a few years. But Anyone can make a cracker. So why are you seeing these cracker companies have these huge monopoly profits? Um, so that kind of got me interested in the whole antitrust and discovering Barry Lynn, the folks who open the markets. But at the same point, like a lot of my family voted for Trump. And I don't, I like to jokingly say I was probably the only person at Treasury to cost or vote for Bernie Sanders in the primary because I don't think people understood, and there was a misperception in the capital city, just the pain people feel. And so I moved back home because after Trump's election, I, I, I was a civil servant, and it was we don't have any children yet, so I wanted to run for public office because I thought this was an issue no one was talking about. I was actually looking at a state tenancy, but then a good friend of mine, retired school teacher um decided to run after he's really anti teacher legislation this past session in Iowa. So and also this antitrust message a, a big component of it is federal. So it's kinda of one of those things where I wanted to move home. I love this message and it was like, oh, this is a competitive primary. This is a very competitive seat. It kind of the stars kind of aligned sort of thing. So it was like it wasn't like I woke up one morning, but, you know, it kinda it all made sense but slowly. It's also funny to say, like, you launched a congressional campaign based on an academic paper. <laughs> it's like the nerdiest thing possible. I think it's kind of funny.
0: But there must have been something, too. I mean, when you, when you were doing that research and really seeing kind of this shocking level of consolidation that was happening in different industries, and I mean, you mentioned food, there must have been an aspect of that that actually really connected back to what you saw growing up in Iowa. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about... You know, you know. Obviously, you didn't go out and run a campaign, uh, talking to people about uh, a paper you'd done on excess corporate profits, um, but really talking about what that meant in the context of their lives. So, I'm curious what it was about running across this issue of monopoly that resonated so much with what you had seen in Iowa.
1: It was the fresh eyes, like you know, living in Iowa, growing up in Iowa, going to college in Iowa, going to see for a few years, coming back, and then like realizing oh, wait, that McDonald farm, that imagery, doesn't exist. There's no livestock on farms anymore. You know, it's all in CAFOs. I mean, you still see some beef farmers, but not too many. I mean, a lot of that land, when corn went up to seven, was put into ethanol. So seeing that and then just seeing the, I think kind of lost in a lot of these conversations where a lot of the Great Recession was an urban recovery. A lot of rural rural communities are still struggling. And just seeing, like, you have the world's best farmland, yet the poverty is increasing. You have Red Oak, Iowa, which is a town of four or 5,000, home to Senator Joni Ernst. Two out of three kids there on freebie this lunch. It boils your blood. And, like, this system's broken. Like, you can get a better locally sourced meal in, like, D.C., New York, L.A. than I can in a diner in Iowa. Wow. My, you know, my dad's a trucker, and my mom recently lost her job at Target because of these consolidation stuff. And it's just like you get it. It's one thing to see it on an Excel sheet, but when you talk to people, you just you see the anger, you see the pain.
0: Mm-hmm. There's an idea in I think elite policy circles and among you know economists and the like that you know you can't really run on antitrust or anti-monopoly as a platform because ordinary people don't really understand that. That's sort of far removed. But what I th- think is interesting about your campaign is that you really turned that idea on its head. Your your campaign was really built in the idea that regular voters know a lot more about concentrated power than even the economists do because they're on the receiving end of those consequences. So when you thought about, you know, being motivated to run on this issue of monopoly and concentration and you know, as you went out and started talking to voters, you know, how did you choose to frame that how did you actually talk about that and what kind of response did you get
1: honestly it was just practice i mean i think a lot of candidates being more just telemarketers they don't do retail politics and half retail politics is just learning there's a term like they use called code switching just learning your language like i know when i'm not connecting with you when i'm standing in front of you like that fall when i first announced <laughs> as my partner can tell you of my campaign manager like it was rough like you have to develop that language And I never said the word antitrust, but my whole campaign with antitrust is the way I would use, the examples I would use to suburban Des Moines audience is very different than a real community. And I have to learn that. That's up to me to learn as a politician how to communicate this to you and how it impacts your life. And that just takes practice. It takes, you know, there's times I've failed and you just get back up, you ask people how can I do this better, but because of this current model of campaign, A lot of candidates don't do that. They they just fundraise and they essentially rely on DC consultants to do a random poll and tell them how to talk.
0: You know, talking to farmers in rural Iowa. What were the things that? What were the notes that you hit? You know, the door. If you're door door knocking and the and the door opens, what what's what are you saying?
1: Well, honestly, even if the door. I mean, the hard part is getting them to open the door. I had a Mm -hmm. harder time getting people to open the door in rural communities than in urban Iowa. You know, your house is your everything. It's your largest asset. You know, the local plant manufacturing used to be in urban areas went to rural communities and then went offshore. The people have their home and then they have to drive longer to get a job. You work longer hours for less. Um, our food system is broke, so the cheapest food is usually unhealthy. So you see this kind of like hollowing out of civil society in a lot of rural communities, So people turn inward. And so like the challenge I had, honestly, was how do I get to you when people are iglooing? How do I get to your message? Um, for them, the message I found resonating was A, just I was a Democrat talking, like just knowing what corn prices are, understanding what $7 corn, $3 corn, talking about their pocketbook with seed costs. you can talk about monopoly, but when I say that corn seed tripled, and, tripled in price in 10 years, and I promise you to think it tri- triple as good, A, I'm showing respect to your profession. B, I'm validating your anger. And so it's that coupled with, Especially in rural communities, that sense of you know self-sufficiency and you can't feed your own kids really connects well. Like, mm-hmm. The loneliness. I mean, that's what farm consolidation does. I don't think anyone's really grasped it yet. When you have seven farms within on one street and it becomes one or two, it's only.
0: I feel like this, you know, is an area that has been so underreported on and under-researched, really, which is the ways in which consolidation is just is undermining the social and civic fabric of places and it's it's a lot because you know I study retail a lot as you know um, independent businesses and the difference between you know having a, a neighborhood business district that's thriving if you're in a city or a nice downtown if you're in a small town and you know kind of running your errands where you're running into your neighbors and going into stores where people know you and that kind of thing there are a lot of of social ties that are built that way and they're they're kind of weak social ties in the sense that these are people that are more acquaintances sometimes than close friends or they're sort of more neighbors than close friends um and yet they're really those ties are really valuable and um you know i think there's a way in which that gets overlooked and it's happening you know as you note know, across rural america too
1: we live in an age and this is what i thought treasury and bothered me is we want to over quantify everything Oh, there's a metric efficiency the cult of efficiency You can't make a metric for human ties, human relations that the fact that you know your local your pharmacist, that kind of stuff. The humanity, just seeing the humanity in each other, and the more holistic civic society. I mean that that third space, I mean that's kind of the sad thing you see is like, you know, retail essentially downtown died because it all went to Walmart and the malls. Well malls are dying. And it's just where do people go? Where do they go to see each other? I mean, the one thing that gives me hope now is farmer's markets, because that's kind of filling that void. But, no, I totally agree with you. It's an underappreciated thing, because a lot of, you know, these coastal communities, it's fine. It's robust, a civic society. But with the hollowing of local news, you don't see that. I mean, in southwest Iowa, Warren Buffett owns most of the newspapers. Hmm. It's hard to, and I've had small-town publishers tell me, you know, they, they agree with the Monsanto. I've really focused on opposing Bear Central's merger. But that's also one of our ad buyers. They're barely getting by. They're losing subscribers. They're losing their advertising base. Why buy the hand that feeds them?
0: Mm, Wow, yeah. Yeah, so you really found, you felt like newspapers in your region kind of stepped away from covering that more aggressively?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of times, too, a lot of these papers, they're not making money. They're they're doing by in 10, 12 an hour when you average it out. But it's a sense of duty. You know, it it tends to be older women who are doing it. And Mm -hmm. what happens after that? When they, you know, who's going to carry on that sense of dutiness? Like, where is a newspaper, a small-town newspaper, in this current model of concentrated media? How
0: do you thrive? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting this idea of the the sort of cult of efficiency that we live in and everything needed to be quantified. I mean, it's an interesting thing to hear from someone who worked as an economist because you really understand that on the on the inside. Um, but it's very true, and it's especially true in the antitrust conversation. I mean, I feel like you know part of the reason that antitrust has Strayed so far from its original purpose, and um, is that it has become this highly kind of technical affair where it's largely driven by economic analysis and so what counts is what can be measured and things that are harder to measure or can't be measured aren't on the table even though those impacts are exactly what we should be considering in the context of a merger say you know uh, if you merge two companies and it has these downstream effects on all these communities and the health of those places that really matters and it used to be part of how we thought about merging review before it was so quantified before kind of the economist um, the cult of of economics uh, profession sort of came in and uh, redid how we review mergers to make you know n- anything that isn't really a price effect that can be measured not on the table not part of the analysis
1: oh and also honestly it's just laziness good do just set an excel sheet and say these magical numbers tell me everything but I, I remember this lesson I learned when I was in college. I did my undergrad thesis on slaughterhouse towns in Iowa in the school district because I was shocked to kind of see that they're majority minority. They're very diverse and very poor. And I was looking into it, and like, you know, you could look at the numbers and say, oh, this school district's 40% Latino. You go to the town, you talk to the superintendent, and he goes, that's masking so much. What's happening is maybe those seniors are 15% Latinos, that kindergarten class is maybe 80%. I mean, it's a simple thing where you just talk with a human being, you learn the nuance, and he'll tell you, oh, what happens is usually the men comes first, then the woman, kids. You know, it takes a while for just these different ethnic groups to, partic- you know, to show up in education data. But he's saying our next thing we're concerned about is we have a lot of Sudanese moving in. So we have to essentially make sure we have the resources to have Arabic translators. You don't see that in the data. I can you know, sit in my little DC cubicle, look at my Excel sheet. I wouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. but I, I think part of the cult of efficiency is just laziness
0: yeah yeah that's right and then I think that sort of brings me to another thing that I wanted to talk with you about which is you ran as a democrat um, I'm in Maine which is a, another out of the way state that is largely rural and I guess my sense is that the democratic party for a long time has been sort of out of touch with rural communities uh, very much to its peril um, there are a lot of Um, I think ideas that people have in big coastal cities about rural areas that aren't true. I mean, one of them is this sort of assumption that rural areas are extremely white when in fact there are lots of people of color, lots of gay people living in rural areas. I mean, what do you, when you think about this kind of rural challenge for the democratic party, what do you, what do you think about that? And what's your advice for the party?
1: One of the big things I learned during my campaign was we live in the age of the candidate, not the party. Hmm. The, those That institutional money, that union money, all that's been hollowed out. I mean, that was a systematic assault by Republicans, the robber barons. And hmm. like in Iowa, our Democrat party, it's like in an old keep-the-hut-looking building, run-down building across from the airport. You know, they're barely getting by. Staffers are barely paid. So essentially... What's happened to kind of fill that void, and you kind of saw with the new Democrats, Bill Clinton, his upper-class white professionals now finance the Democrat Party. I mean, as a candidate, you know, do I go up there and learn my rhetoric, learn how to speak antitrust, you know, how do I learn how to connect antitrust, or do I sit and call upper-class white professionals in northwest D.C. or, you know, San Francisco? This message doesn't connect with them. I got so much pushback for supporting Cyber 15 but I think that's part of the problem is because the financing they control it, and candidates have to devote dis- a disproportionate amount of time. Because robber barons can dump a ton of money on you, and you have to raise a lot of money to go tit for tat. How do you have a voice in that? I mean, that's, then you see candidates who break that mold, and it gives you hope this cycle.
0: Mm-hmm. What kind of candidates are you following with this election?
1: I'm a big fan of getting to the candidates themselves, because a lot of times too, you have all these like different progressive groups. To me, a lot of, there's a lot of grass going on between consultants just trying to cash in. I'm really excited by actually quite a few Iowa State House candidates. The two ones in particular is a young woman named Kayla Koser up in northeast Iowa in Decorah. Her, her and her partner are, um ranchers and she, it's a very competitive seat. I went to college with her and she's honestly one of the sharpest people I know. I used to talk tax policy with her on agriculture. She knew more than some of the people I knew at Treasury. Because she she's a sustainable farmer, and so you have Farm Girl will go after her big time. She's one of those people you want to see people like her thrive. And the other one mm-hmm. is this woman named Deidre Jagger, and she's this African-American woman running for Secretary of State. She's one of those people, she just, you know when you meet someone, they're just like, they radiate joy?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She, she says those words that that would come out of a normal politician's mouth and they sound hollow. But when she says, like, I want to get people engaged, register to vote, you know she means it. I'm a little broke after my campaign, but I always make sure, like, whatever I can do to help her. Candidates yeah. like that is, that $100 really does matter to candidates. It helps them buy yard signs. It helps them, you know, pay their staffers. Because part of what concerns me now is people have nationalized their news intake. They read the New York Times or whatever kind of food publication, whatever kind of interest publications. People really are kind of losing touch of what's going on in their own community. it's getting, you know, local news doesn't have that money. So you don't, a lot of people don't know. So it's like finding out Helping those candidates get their message out is so important.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting what you say about the Democratic Party, that the, the root of the problem is less maybe about the people in the party or even necessarily the leadership as much as it is about where the money is coming from, and that that's the problem we need to focus on if we want the Democratic Party to have a different approach to what it's doing and actually connect to rural voters and connect to a different agenda.
1: And that's like the beauty of the unions was when they had more money and power, they were essentially um, a, a stopgap for a, can you connect with blue collar workers. Mm-hmm. But now right. it's like there's not that. Is you you tell a good feel good story about the class white professionals? They'd rather hear me talk about being a working class gay man and what I've overcome versus the average person. Everyone has been through struggles in life. You sit and talk with them, you see it. They want to know how you can make their life better, and so it's flipping that.
0: That's really interesting. That's really interesting. You're listening to Austin Frerich, former Iowa congressional candidate and fellow at Open Markets Institute. I'm Stacy Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your financial support not only underwrites this podcast, keeping it ad-free, but it also helps us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to policymakers and citizens. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ilsr.org/donate. That's ilsr.org/donate. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us out in other ways. One great thing you can do is tell your friends about this podcast uh, and rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Ratings help us reach a wider audience, so it's hugely helpful when you do that. Thanks. Just turning back to the anti-monopoly approach and, you know, there's this really interesting quote that I saw from you where you said, you can try to organize workers at a slaughterhouse all you want, but if that company has 60% market share, they can just shut it down. And I thought that was interesting because it really spoke to the fact that, you know, for a long time, the focus for people organizing around worker justice um, has been, you know, how do we reinvigorate unions? How do we raise the minimum wage? And those things are important, but you're you're really pointing to the fact that concentrated power, if we don't confront that, this other stuff may not matter.
1: Drake, like, so Des Moines is home to a really good university called Drake University, and they, they're known for their uh, journalism program. And what the saddest thing is, you see a lot of these kids come out of it, but there's not that job in local journalism, but there's jobs in corporate communications. Hmm. And, you know, you're seeing Tyson, I mean, it's funny to see these companies brand themselves as like do-getters. Having Monsanto talk about how it cares about soil health is pretty comical. But they understand they have that kind of money because they have monopoly profits to do this this PR campaign. I think what you saw happen is a tyrant came along, exploited that anger, and just instead of blaming Tysons, he blamed the brown person. Mm-hmm. So there's validity to the anger, a lot of people feel. It's just these companies have so much resources, and they will crush you. I've seen it with tons of sustainable agricultural candidates in Iowa. You have them and their cronies, the Iowa Farm Bureau, will just dump a lot of money on you. And a lot of times I've seen Democrats, you can't call off these. You're you're incredibly naive if you think you can take their money and, you know, neuter them in a way. Like, no, they are going to... These trend lines will only intensify. So I think it's just confronting the on, And also... Like David versus Goliath, I think candidates need more. Why fundraise all the time to buy media, earn media? Because it's so much funner than being in a, in a little box calling people all day for money. It's it's fun being out there helping, me you know, being a part of a fight for 15 protests. You know, being part of a formal protest against. So, like, get to know those communities. You know, but make sure you talk about it on social media. Make sure you tell that local newspaper, all that kind of stuff.
0: Hmm. You know, although you had to drop out of the race, um, you know, in sort of trying to keep up with the the difficulty of trying to keep up with the with the necessary sort of money. Um, as you look around the country, do you feel hopeful at what you're seeing in terms of the 2018 election? Do you feel like there are more candidates who are talking about corporate power successfully? I mean, what's your sort of read of where we're at right now?
1: Oh, that's such a God, I feel it's like a quarter, you know when you flip it and every day it's a different feeling.
0: Mhm.
1: I mean I keep going back to like twenty fourteen when Ebola was a thing. I'm so afraid because these guys have so much money and they're usually old white men, Koch brothers, you know, we know all that hedge fund money. They can dump so much money and gin up a controversy where there's great people running, there's some cool people talking about corporate power, but what will they you know, what will be that October thing? I mean the scary thing about this moment too is how much of the business community is willing to ignore the president's very—I mean, I don't even know what how, words to describe what he says because or because you know he gave him a tax cut.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We talk about this once the treasury, and we all, everyone, kind of like coward when you say the word. But there's some—we're dancing around fascist lines really close. I regret not working as hard for 2016 as I did for prior elections. So making sure, you know, as October November comes. You're telling everyone and you're, like every every person you know like make sure you vote here's why I mean like this is why I care about a candidate donating to candidates as you know, as almost like um donating to you know causes mhm the candidates you really think like you really connect with their message, give them money, give them your time, have that be your Saturday activity mhm. I'm hopeful that we can like usually in the darkest moments of our country we have these great moments where we leap forward like it it took that Gilded Age to make that progressive movement and I hope we can see the second Gilded Age to get to that second progressive movement but we're dancing so close to so many lines right now
0: the sobering and the hopeful um, mixed together there and I think that's that's a very accurate read of where we're at how do you, I mean, you've, you've offered several suggestions for people, you know, do get involved in campaigns, do give money to candidates that you like, even if it's small dollars, and, and definitely talk to your friends and neighbors and everyone you know about voting, about also getting involved in campaigns and giving money. Um, those things seem really uh, incredibly critical right now. Um, what else, you know, even of moving past the election, what do you think people should be doing in their communities about the problem of corporate power?
1: I think a lot of us are, like, thinking about how do we reassert our own power? We have power at our local levels. I could jokingly say, I'm not even 30, I'm a failed politician. But I remember every email I got, every Facebook message, try to respond to it, and I know other candidates do, too. Contact them, your city council member. Like, let's say procurement. It's a nerdy word, but it's so important. Where do you buy your stuff? Where does the city buy your stuff? You could push ordinances that say, don't buy Amazon, buy local. Or... Even your local school district, buy some part of your food locally. Keep that money within your community. Some of my favorite work you guys are doing is that North Dakota pharmacy stuff. I had never heard about it until a few months ago. The fact that, was it, pharmacy has to be like 51% owned by a pharmacist?
0: Yeah, that's right. You can't open uh, the the pharmacies in North Dakota. You can't open a pharmacy unless you're a pharmacist. So it has to be wholly owned by a pharmacist. So there are no Walmart or Walgreens uh, pharmacies in North Dakota.
1: What I found funny about that too is there was a great consumer reports study came out earlier this year where they, they took six of the most popular generic drugs, called 150 different pharmacies, averaged out what was the price at Costco, Walgreens, CVS, Independent. The Independents were about $100, 107 I think. CVS, Walgreens were like seven, 800 Yeah. If you have it, Amazon or all these things are cheaper. They're not. You called they they then contacted C V S and like, Hey, what's going on here? And C V S was like, Oh, but you didn't get our coupons So what well, consumer reports went back and tried to get these coupon rebates and it was so across the board. Some would give you twenty off, some would give you hundred and fifty, but even with even with the cheapest coupons, it was still cheaper to buy your independent pharmacy. Not only is that like a great example of just that narrative being wrong, but also like people forget with local ownership, local pharmacists. These people are invested members of the community. They're the ones who are going to buy that ad, you know, in the basketball program. They're the ones that are going to help pay for the food pantry. And because that's one of those things we, I didn't realize about consolidation is you lose that business community. You lose that professional class. That, that PTA parent, that civic society goes away when you lose that community member, that that, that, that entity. So I think that's such an important point.
0: It's so striking how, in how many sectors where we've done research, where we found that small independent businesses offer a lot of value and sometimes lower prices. Uh, Better outcomes, and yet people don't see that. I mean, the pharmacy example is a really telling one. You know, people just assume that these local pharmacies can't compete. You know, that they can't uh, provide you know good quality uh, service at low cost. And in fact, they're out competing the chains. Uh, The reason that they're disappearing has to do with the market power of CVS Health and other sort of PBMs that. You know, undermine them. And we just see this in so many sectors. You know, another one that comes to mind is, you know, uh, broadband. Provision, you know, uh, if you uh, push back against Comcast and Time Warner, I mean, one of the things you'll hear from their supporters is the reason that our broadband prices are so high in the U.S. compared to the rest of the world is that we're, uh, you know, a very, um, you know, largely rural country where everything is really spread out and it costs a lot of money to, you know, extend these cables and everything to, you know, a more spread out kind of population than, say, in Europe or elsewhere, And then what's so funny and ridiculous about that is that the lowest broadband prices for um, in this country are actually in rural areas where there are small uh, co-ops and other providers that have built these high speed fiber networks that are better and cheaper than what Comcast and Time Warner are doing in cities. Um, You know, the reason that those companies are so expensive is because they have a monopoly in most places. Um, And, you know, that's what's really going on. But it's hard, you know, it's challenging to, I I realize in in going out and making these kinds of arguments or, or pointing to this information that people are it's hard for them to see it in a way because we're so steeped in the ideology that bigger is cheaper and that, yeah, we might be nostalgic about the loss of the local business. Maybe there are these sort of touchy feely reasons why, you know, we miss them. But, you know, a hard nosed kind of analysis is that they really can't compete. And that ideology is so prevalent that even when you present people with that information, it doesn't always really sink in
1: honestly I, I probably thought that as soon as a year ago i i it sounds so simple but like earlier this summer i was in mason city iowa and i was just putzing around um i like to break up my drives i didn't drive from cedar rapids to minneapolis and um there, there's a big iowa department store chain called yonkers going out of business and so i was like looking at them mall. and it's just you know you're seeing these retail these type of units collapse but i was downtown and i had stumbled upon a men's store you don't see men's stores anymore. I can probably count on one hand on how many are in Iowa. Went in and it was like really good customer service, young guy, like taking over his dad's business. Bought a pair, like In my head, I was like, oh, I'm going to pay way more than anything I would pay the bigger store. I'm going to buy a you know, nice pair of socks. That way I can give them some business, feel good about myself. But I figured in my head, oh, I'm paying four or five more dollars. I went online later, price check. His socks were the same price.
0: <laughs> you know I mean? right. It
1: was just a simple, it's a simple little thing where like in my head, I think I'm paying a price premium that feel goodness. And it's just not true, but it's, it's so ingrained in us.
0: It reminds me, there was a piece, um, in, uh, someone wrote for medium last week. We'll put, we'll post a link, uh, in the, in the, on the show page for this episode. Cause I'm, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the writer, um, but he was in—he's in D.C. and he was also going to write a story about how uh, brick-and-mortar retail is going by the wayside and what we are sort of losing in that process. But we're, you know, what's driving it is that we are getting, you know, lower prices, and so kind of like a trade-off sort of story: low prices versus lost local retail. And he went into a local hardware. St- store in D.C. called Logan Hardware. And he bought a variety of different things and then went and price checked them on Amazon. And lo and behold, Amazon's prices were about 30 percent higher for that basket of goods than he got at the independent Logan Hardware store. So he ended up writing a completely different story, which was, you know, I've you know, I've been shot. He said, I've been shopping at Amazon on the theory that I'm saving money. And it turns out I should have been going to this local hardware store all the time. And um you know, it's just, uh, it's again, sort of more of that uh, ways in which we have these blinders on that are really about ideology and not about actually seeing what's right in front of us.
1: And that's like the point I always make with Amazon too, with people is they're known for the customer service. Sure. It's its, it's a question of power. Do we want one person to have that much power in our country that have $150 billion and to control the capital city's newspaper? We've never seen before in our, the history of our country where one, one company got every city put forward their best bride. And they made a dog and pony show out of it. And we're supposed to celebrate that? It's concerning. And I think a lot of people, I, I talked to someone who actually works in a warehouse, and, you know, these they have little beepers on them. You know, if if they don't move a package or scan a package in a few minutes, something goes beep, beep, and, like you're treated like... Kind of one of the things I learned with this monopoly message... People don't feel respected anymore by the employer mm. that, like mm. I mean, it's a simple thing, but you know professional class people, you don't have a little dinger on I mean, you. Like, people scroll you know they're not feeling good. they might scroll around on BuzzFeed for an hour i and I, God, I, I almost used the term called low uh low skill worker. I think that's one of the most patronizing things in economics I, I remember I said that to my mom once. My mom used to work at a Starbucks, and it takes a lot of skill to socialize for ten hours to be on your feet. And it was just one of those things that came out of my mouth because I was so used to that econ jargon. You're like, that's so dehumanizing. But I didn't mean to go on a rant on that, but just this respect of like Christmas parties, holiday parties, that sense of you're you're seeing them disappear. You're seeing that kind of, because a lot of these executives, these consolidated entities don't even live in the community. They're not on the same soccer team anymore. They don't see what it means, what these policies mean for people. I mean, you had in Creston, Iowa, you had a candy factory close because they going to a murder 10 days before christmas and fire like 250 employees like where can like, why would you do that to a human being having them lose their job 10 days for the holidays why not wait till january february like where's that decency
0: yeah that's really true and i'm you know it's a i'm i'm glad that there are a growing number of people out there like you who are, you know, either running for office or supporting candidates or getting involved in their communities and talking about these issues because I think this is, there's an encouraging level of activity happening now at the local level and, and really in all parts of the country around these issues and people are beginning to connect these dots in a really powerful way and so, um, you know, I I, I share, Your sort of sense of, uh, on the one hand, what we're Facing is very sobering and scary, and on the other hand, it feels like there's some real cracks in the facade, and that people, are, you know, light is starting to emerge, and people are starting to figure out sort of how these things are are related and what's really going on underneath the story that's been told for a long time. So um, it's great to have you on the show, and I'm I've you know really uh, enjoyed uh, listening to you and hearing more about what you're talking about in Iowa and what you see as ways to change these things.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And then the last thing I would just say to that point is you can win by losing. And I think that's something where people, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's great to win. You have to have a conversation with yourself, like you're given a platform when you're on. What conversations do you want to start? Is this a vanity project? Are you trying to put more? Because if we all keep taking cracks, it's essentially going to break. But but if you have one community try to take on, you know, the power monopoly and say we want our own power system, you know, that... that you know that entity can just dump a bunch of money on them but if you have 10 communities trying to do it you know they're going to start getting stretched thin and someone's going to get a crack in them and win you know we all just got to keep taking those hits you know speaking truth to power because then you get these moments where someone breaks through and then it's a different game changer
0: that's right. Well, I want to end by asking you a question that we often end the show on, which is, do you have like a reading or watching recommendation for our listeners? And it can be related to these issues or not.
1: Don't judge me too much, but I was actually going to say RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, nice. It's such a good feel-good TV. It's um, RuPaul, you know, the famous drag queen from the 90s. He has a show with kind of like America's Next Top Model, where all these people come on and they can beat to be America's Next Drag Superstar. But it's such a feel-good TV, where like a lot of this reality TV anymore is just cut for the worst. It's a feel-good one, where they're, you know, it lifted an art form that it's been so degraded in our, our culture, but yet these people have to be funny, they have to sew, they have to perform. They're challenging gender norms. And it's, I don't know, I, I love coming home after campaign day and I'm like, okay, let me just watch an hour of campy TV.
0: That's great. And not to sound too old-fashioned by asking this question, but where can people find RuPaul's Drag Race? on netflix
1: sometimes i usually buy it i usually buy the episodes i don't have cable Mm -hmm. i want to support that so i'll pay twenty dollars by season watch each episode um i think the different platforms will have it you can buy hard copies of dvds i believe there's 10 seasons um i think season four is the best but everyone has their own opinion
0: (laughs) all right you heard it here first season four rupaul's drag race thank you again austin it's been so great to have you on the show
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Jason. Keep up the good work.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ILSR.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Hiba Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.